Shut up and sit down. Ended and I didn't. I didn't say anything. I just didn't say anything at all. I got Jilly on the air. Maybe. Yeah, I'm Maybe. here. I'm just trying to find okay. my headset. <laughs> <laughs> it's here I somewhere. want you to know she had an hour and a half to prepare for this. <laughs> I didn't spring this on her. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> This is messing with you. Um, we're going to talk about external motivations tonight, uh, about, uh, you know, in, in story construction. And, um, so that, you know, just because I think that this is um, this is a big stumbling block for a lot of people. And it's a... It's integral to both your characterization and your overall plot that you that you fully grasp um, external motivators and how they impact your characterization, how they impact your pace and your flow and how they can cause problems um, and why it's really important not to add a huge external motivator late in the game unless you want to add another 100K to your story. (laughs) And maybe you do. Maybe you do. So, we're going to talk about that tonight. We call that and then. And then. And then. And then there was an alien invasion. (laughs) And then rocks fell and everybody died. (laughs) Sometimes you're in that kind of mood. I also think this is why there are lots of works in progress that get abandoned. Yeah. Because... They run out of external motivators. They don't know where their end is. Um, They've never really dealt with the internal consequences of the external events, and then they're they're out of gas. I'm frequently out of gas. Yeah, me too. That's an entirely different set of circumstances. Well, but there's also the issue of when it comes to the and then thing is that if people have failed to identify, because we talked about the point or the purpose or the reason you're writing the story, um, it's one of the points or the purpose of your story, not the reason why you're writing it. But we talked about that last night. And if you fail to identify that, you can keep heaping external motivators onto your story that actually don't serve the story, and that can leave you feeling lost because you keep adding plot points, and it feels like it's just a never-ending plot, which could be true if your story doesn't have a defined purpose in your own mind. 
you know, I was trying to get in the chat room, and I went to Rough Trade, and I'm just staring. I just sat here staring at Rough Trade, like, what am I doing here? I don't remember. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> There's no chat <laughs> room on Rough Trade, trade. so to discourage um, fucking around. If you're gonna have to, if you're gonna fuck around, you have to go elsewhere and do it. <clears throat> All fucking around needs to be over at Kira's world. That's right. A bit of it. Uh oh, boom mom's in the okay. In the place. <laughs> yeah, that's the place. Uh, it. Where do you dumpster dive for fic? Is that the pit? Because I had done that many a night. (laughs) I have to be really desperate to go over to the pit, I have to say. Really (laughs) desperate. Or wanting to read Harry Potter. (laughs) Oh, she did the whole dumpster fire. (laughs) The Abyss. Insane Journal and Tumblr. (laughs) Well, if she'd hit Wattpad, we'd have had to stage an intervention. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know that really cute ass demon story not a demon where um, the little girl um, gets her god to worship and it's like the god of death or it's what is it oh god well she gets what she gets a little skeleton or a little hellhound of some sort right it's sort of a demon pick yeah it's, yeah. Oh, god. Um, she gets a hellhound she's worshipping oh, um Anubis, the house of oh yeah yeah Susie of the House of Miller. That's on Wattpad, and that is some fantastic shit. If you've not read Susie of the House of Miller, you're missing out. <laughs> it is recommended. I'll let someone else find that link. Sometimes I got to try to find links, but I wouldn't even know how to search for links something on Wattpad. But I don't think that's fanfic, <laughs> is it? That's just someone. No, someone needs no, to publish no. that. That's, that's that's someone needs to pub- She should be publishing that shit. Um, I think it came from a Tumblr prompt. Gee, boo! What a sacrifice! Jesus. <laughs> boo gave up on her Hogwarts giant squid story for the podcast. I have read the Hogwarts giant squid story. That is all I'm going I to have say. not, and I'm glad we could save you from that. Boo! That's clearly it was definitely time for an intervention. I have put a link up for Susie of the House of Miller. If you go to Google and search Susie S U Z Y of the House of Miller, you will find it, and um, I highly recommend it. It's by Hair Dryer. Excellent story. So you wanted to go, um, you wanted to do examples tonight? Yeah, Sula had written me last night um, saying mm-hmm. that the discussion about um, when you're struggling to find the end is make sure you get clear on what your purpose or your point of your story is. Um, it had really mm-hmm. helped them. Um, and I thought, well, maybe we talk about craft a lot and maybe, and she said when we, she did the part that was really helpful for her was dissecting our own stories. And we did that for a very brief period of time. So I suggested it's Kira that we try 
dissecting some of our own work a little bit more as examples rather than trying to build examples. So that might okay. help it gel for people who struggle with the concept of internal and external motivation or internal and external conflict. I had a mouthful of cheese, sorry. Um, that's the thing about getting a, uh, Julie said she was going to get some soft, noiseless snacks. Well, I did too, and I got a cheese stick, which I'm really enjoying, but it's a lot of chewing. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I had a misfire with my snack as well, so I'm just going to look at it because I grabbed, I was in a hurry, and um, I grabbed a jar of peanut butter and spoon, not the most. It's quiet, but not really conducive for talking. <laughs> so, pick a story. <laughs> pick a story. Um, pick Sometimes a story. I can't remember my own work. Bring up, I have an A to Z list of my stories that are d- done. Um Well, let's pick a Sentinel Guide one because that's that's one that's very. I'll, I'll start with that. That's because it's very relevant to what's coming up in July. Um, okay. Which one though? Should we do simple, short, or something longer, more complicated? Well, I have a long, complicated one that we can do. The Awakening. Um, uh, which has a lot of external factors. Let's do that one since we're talking about. Let's start with that. Because it does have a lot of then. external factors. Um, <clears throat> with the awakening, um, I had several different openings and, uh, and different. Um, I tried opening the awakening um, as a writing experience like six times before I found the right place. Um, and uh, it was. I wasn't sure um, where I wanted to take it. I were, where I wanted, well, I knew the plot. Okay, so so the plot, the external plot was was really defined for me. Um, but being new to the Sentinel fandom and only having learned the characterization of the characters through fanfic, I because I had not watched a single episode. <laughs> of Sentinel. I had read the synopsises. Of, the synopsis of all of all the episodes, because um, somebody had an episode guide at one time on a website, so I had doubt I'd read that. Um, so I knew the basic events of canon, and I knew the characters' names, and I knew their general personalities, um, but I I didn't know how uh, I was iffy on the footing of my character and and how to start it, and so. Um, The choice to what was that? Is that me? No, that was me. I didn't. You guys hear that? Muted, but it was my computer. I I didn't realize my computer was oh. muted. I sh- I shedded it. That was terrible. What was that? I you know the first thing I do when I get a new computer is turn off all system sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot stand that my computer was- to make noise at me. I- <laughs> Oh, this music I don't want to hear from my computer. 
Yeah, I get, most things I turn off, but um, when I get my when I get text messages on my phone, I get them on my computer, and that's that that I kept up because that way if my phone isn't nearby, I know that I've got text messages. So. <laughs> but I usually turn my computer I, uh... on silent before chat before the podcast, and I just didn't do it today. But I do turn off all systems sounds because the only sound coming out of my computer is music when I push play. <laughs> I mute games too. I don't like all that stuff in my ear. I I, I guess I'm sensitive to it. I don't know. Um, it, I I get actually no, that's not, that's not it. It's not sensitivity. It's a um, I get annoyed really easily by repetitive noises and sounds, like like the stuff you get from computers. That shit can get mm-hmm. real old real fast. You just make me furious. So, okay, back to the awakening. And um, the the point of the awakening is in the title. And it's about, on the outside looking into the awakening, I think that a lot of times the reader sees the awakening as Jim's awakening, that he um, that he's waking up that he woke up in the middle of the night and, you know, sought out his guide because Blair needed him. Um, but it's not. It's not about Jim. It's about Blair. And um, starting it from Jim's point of view, I did that because I wanted to start. Um, I wanted, the thing is, is Jim's kind of an asshole. <laughs> He's not particularly nice to people in general, and that's the impression that I got of him from fandom before I ever watched a single episode of the show, and I, my impression was not wrong. Jim's an asshole. No, it was not. <laughs> it was not yeah. wrong. It was this. So, I started it there. Oh, kind of a lovable bit, though. Right, right, yeah. Like McKay, like House, you know. Um, Jim likes the arrogance of McKay or a House like type character. Um he has the assholery down pat, but he's not he's not arrogant to me anyway. That's not what I saw um of him in the show or in fanfic or anything. He's just he's not an arrogant person. He's he's confident of his abilities um as a cop, as a soldier, um, but not as a sentinel. Uh and he's an asshole. <laughs> He and he has terrible taste in women. Yes. <laughs> no. No. He has terrible taste in women. This is what I know about Jim Ellison. And so I opened him up at a place um, where he's, you know, he's 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 working. He's doing his thing, and, and he's he's maintaining a status quo. And then we shift to Blair's point of view, and you see Blair's status quo starting to shake under the strain um, of being unbonded. Um, And it's not a matter of personal strength or even work ethic. It's just it's not what he wants anymore. And he's he's fraying around the edges. You know, his temper is shorter, getting shorter. He's um, no longer willing to compromise. Uh, And it's just, it's, it's building. And that frustration builds in Blair, and it has been building in Blair until he reaches out for his sentinel in a way that's supposed to be impossible. 
And that's the awakening in the awakening. And the rest of the story is about them learning to work together as a pair. And so all these external um, events, you know, um, the, um, the children missing, them finding a guide that has been taken from foster care, her death, um, all those guides coming online in response to the death of a wolf guide, uh, and then the, the, the kidnapping and Blair uh, coming into his role as the alpha guide of Cascade and directing the pride to find this young vulnerable guide that has been taken. So he comes into his own um, as the alpha guide and, you know, takes, he just settles down. But all these external events that are pushing them, push them together instead of apart, because that's just how I operate. I'm more of a, my characters against the universe than the universe trying to separate my characters. Yeah. Uh, like John says it in a story that I have not published online where he's talking to another version of John there. He's talking to an alternate version of himself and he asked him what it's like to be married to McKay. And he said, you know, he's a pain in the ass. He's arrogant. He works too much. He doesn't eat right. He said, but at the end of the day, no matter what's happening, it's, it's really great to know that he's standing right beside me, giving the universe the finger. And it is. That's yeah. the goal, you know. So, um, and so, so that's just my perspective going into a um, to a story. Is uh, I don't often let my external issues impact my pairing. They act against my pairing, but they don't separate my pairing. Yeah, I think that is a common plot device. Is the push pull of the characters push the character in romances especially is they come together they get pulled apart they come together they get pulled apart and um i actually find it refreshing that you don't do that i mean is anything wrong with with that trope with that that plot device that that narrative structure nothing wrong with it um but it's, it's a little bit more challenging on the plot front to keep your characters together because if your plot events are all pulling your characters apart, um, then your um, internal motivation is about coming back together again. The response to the external stuff is to come back together again. So um, it's a little less... Um, uh, I guess to me it's more expected. So I, I just like the, the variation of um, a couple coming together and it's them against the universe, even if even if they're together the whole story or come together at the last minute or whatever. But the, the, once they're together, they're together. Boom. Man, watch out. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, is that when you do that, when you create, and you have all these external situations trying to pull your characters apart, it allows you to build a very healthy communication. And so you end up with a really intimate and healthy relationship if your characters are talking to each other. 
Because in the awakening, you can see when you explain what the point is about the awakening, about Blair coming into kind of his role, which he's fully into it by the Mm -hmm. end. But all of those external events that are the plot are realizing, because it starts early with him, that Mm -hmm. starts building early. And all those external events feed into the realization of him and, and them together by the end of the story. It allows them to realize the point of the story. And the way their pride moves around them and comes to trust them. And when he... Um, when they have to look for her, the one that's been kidnapped, and I forget her name, all of a sudden it just fell right out of my head. Uh, <clears throat> Elizabeth, her name is Elizabeth. Um, when when they go to look for Elizabeth, um, and the way the other sentinels in the uh, in the pride respond, and the guy on task, and that's what that's what happens to me in my mind with a healthy pride when the when the alpha and the sentinel when the alpha guy and the and the alpha sentinel are working well together and their bond is healthy. They are on point. And if they're on point, their whole pride is on point. And around that, it, it, I mean, it does sit on the alpha guide um, with the pride structure that I write. Um, and if the alpha guide isn't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> Um, I just had a my my brain's blue screened. <laughs> yeah, weirdly I did too. I'm just sitting here. I'm staring at. Uh, somebody said I hate that trope in the chat room, and I looked at that and I started thinking. I wonder which trope she's talking about because sometimes the chat is about ten seconds, fifteen seconds behind the live conversation, um, because people hearing it are not. Um, if they're not if they're not on the phone, they're hearing about 10 to 15 at a time. So the responses can be a little bit off of where we're at live. Um, and so I just saw that, and I got to that thought. I wonder which trope, and then my brain stopped right there. They're <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> talking about miscommunication or not communicating or misunderstanding trope, which can be which can be annoying as hell. I um, did it once. Um, with the magical promise, and it's um, um it's basically um, on her side of the event, she's made a promise magically not to contact Harry, and she did it for a couple of reasons: one, because she was being emotionally terrorized, and two, because she feared rejection. And when he never responded to her letter, she had no way to reach out to him unless she did it through a third person, and there was that rejection that she saw looming. And for him, it was pride. <laughs> because that's what men are. They're prideful. <laughs> we'll spend three hours looking for something before he will ask me where it is. And then get mad when I find it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> 
took well, why didn't you ask that already me three hours ago? Well, motherfucker, why didn't yeah. you ask me three hours ago? And I'm not saying all men do this, but that's the perspective that I wrote Harry and Hermione in The Magical Promise. Um, and it's not so much um, a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. It's, it's more misunderstanding than miscommunication, but mostly it's about um, rejection and acceptance, which is acceptance is a big theme in all of my work. Acceptance and consent. With, I mean, we, we talked. No, I can't see how anybody can write 75K of um, miscommunication plot. That people do. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit about know, the misunderstanding. I yeah, I, I can't do it. It's actually the misunderstanding trope is one of my least favorites as, as a total plot device. Um, there are, you could have, I can do, and I do leverage small misunderstandings or miscommunications to achieve a specific end in the short term, but I clear them up quickly because I expect my characters to act like adults and talk to each other. Um, unless there's some external force in, in pre- preventing the communication or causing the misunderstanding, that's different because that's an external force as opposed to just two people who can't talk. Um, but in general, um, I don't, it, it's a trope that drives me batshit insane, where the entire plot hinges on two people not being able to um, communicate around um, an event for, like, you know, some, like, um, there's a misunderstanding about one person's level of romantic interest, and that one misunderstanding carries the plot for 70,000 words. I can't do it. It drives me crazy. You know, I mean, it's just... No, I like like to write adults. I even... Even when I write very young characters, when I write Harry Potter in, like, the third year or fourth year, I expect them to be adults about it. (laughs) (laughs) You got big problems. You got to act like big people. (laughs) Otherwise... I did see something on Facebook made me laugh my ass off earlier today. It was how people in their 20s call people older than them adults, um, not realizing that they're the adult. And then someone responded and said, I'm not an adult. I'm a child with a drinking permit. (laughs) (laughs) I am perfectly okay with that. Yeah, I'm a child with a drinking permit. That's me. But then, you know, I remember being in that just thinking, I'm not really an adult. And then seeing someone 15, 16, oh, Jesus, I'm an adult. I'm really, look, look at me adulting. <laughs> There's a world of difference. I don't want to adult. No, adulting sucks. We gotta put that on. You put that on the site somewhere. My favorite quote is: "The difference between a beer and your opinion is I'll ask for a beer." (laughs) It needs to go somewhere. It does need to be somewhere. At least we could put it up at MHQ. I should make a sign out of it. Yeah, because that's good. So, um, but should we do another the one? Awakening ah. is plot driven. 
the way the awakening oh, yeah. is plot driven. Um, and and it, really, when when you do a case fic, I think if it's not plot driven, your pace is going to be terrible. Yeah, I you have a lot of people for me to write a character driven story in a case fic. Right. So. Yeah, because if you if you're writing now, you, I, I actually have seen. This, there's occasionally where I'll read a story that's more character driven around a case, and it's because the case is incidental to what the character's evolution is. Um, sort of like they're, you know, it's sort of like imagine a Tony getting fed up with his team kind of thing, and the the things that are pushing him to be fed up are what's important and not so much the case details. And that's where your internal motivation is more important than the external factors. Um, but you still have to explain external factors because you can't just have them getting fed up with nothing. But the actual details of the case that this is structured around become like background noise. Like you could have one or two lines about, well, they made some progress. They found a suspect while they were out executing a warrant, you know, this event happened, and then the next relevant details about the case may not be as important. So it kind of depends what kind of story you're trying to tell. But it's important to determine, yeah, what what's your purpose? What's your theme? Um, because that, uh, if you're going to be plot-driven, you need to know that up front. You need to know what's driving your story. Is it your plot or is it your characterization? Because if you don't know, you're going to have a really hard time setting your pace. So what I would also say is, go ahead. Okay, what I would also say is um, that uh, a lot of these decisions about pacing and characterization and uh, uh, point of view, um, tense, all of it. A lot of times you make these choices instinctually. Like, I don't sit down every time I'm going to write a story and say, okay, I'm going to tell this story from John's point of view um, and analyze why I'm thinking that. Sometimes it's just a very natural choice. Sometimes I have to think about it. But a lot of times these choices and get made naturally. So, uh, and with Pace, I've been writing for so long that I rarely ever have to analyze my my content for pacing. Um, and the more you write, the better you will be at this. So it's not ever our intention to make writing appear complicated than it is. It's not easy. Um, in fact, the creative process is is being creative can't be taught. You're either creative or you're not. You're either a writer or you're not. You can be taught heart surgery. You can't be taught to be a writer. Does that make sense? Um, most people could be taught to do heart surgery. I'm not saying I would trust them with my heart surgery, but they could be taught the the, the basics of it. But you can't be taught to be a writer. You can be taught mechanics, you can be taught um, literary theory, um, but you can't be taught to be a writer. And um, the more you write, the more these um, 
these principles will come to you on an instinctual basis and you won't have to invest a lot of time in thinking about um, making these decisions because they'll come naturally. And that's the point that I wanted to make um, early on in the podcast. I didn't, because I, I, I never want these podcasts to seem like we're trying to make your life and your process more difficult because that isn't, that isn't the point. Anyway, Jilly, no, but sometimes are you still muted? Sometimes, no, I wasn't muted. Well, I I did mute briefly when I um knocked over my tea because you guys didn't need to hear me. Fall <laughs> oh, um, oh. it was fine. It was fine. It was, did you it was, save it? The lid I have on my tea makes contain most of it, but um, oh, good. It, it got a little bit things. Some things got a little bit wet. Um, uh, well, but um. I'm very, I'm very. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna try to follow, follow the the moose mouse mouse. Moose, I, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> the uh, it, it's a case. Of, sometimes the case is like it's just, just just right, just right. But sometimes you need to go back, and if you're trying to understand, some of these things are easier to understand in hindsight than they are to sit down and do them. So if somebody told you to, like, structure all of this stuff and go and write in this format, it, it can really stifle your creativity to try to figure out how all of these events play together. But editing, when you go back and edit your work and analyze your work, um, it can that's where you need to start getting the, the vocabulary around what you're trying to do and looking critically at your own work to, um, and I don't mean critically as in judging it, well, there is an element of that, but I mean, in, in giving it a discerning eye to what you're doing and trying to label it. So, you know, when you've written your story and, you know, something feels off and you kind of go, okay, well, well, where is your climax in the story? Well, okay, the climax occurred in the first third, you know, and once you identify that, well, that might be what's wrong with the structure of your story is you've got two thirds of your story is conceivably falling action. And that's weird. But that may not be something you can fix or identify and write to, but it is something you can learn about later. You can kind of put a label to it. And I think one of the things that um, people miss out on is analyzing their own work and figuring out where they've misstepped um, and how to do it differently, how to edit it to be different, to fix because any of this stuff can be fixed, right? And when you look at a finished work, if your climax is in the wrong spot, you can adjust your story, you know. Um, actually, in that kind of case, you probably wouldn't adjust your story. What you'd probably do is make your story shorter. Story, story, story shorter. Why couldn't I do that? You make your story shorter and then write a sequel. But anyway, that's kind of a – but if you've got a pacing problem, that can be fixed if you – um, have too many, if you have a character-driven story and you've got too many external events um, and you're getting into and-then territory and not actually fulfilling your purpose, that can all be fixed. But, you know, have something to work with and be willing to do that work is kind of how you learn this stuff. I didn't learn all this stuff before I started writing. I was like 12. <laughs> I just started telling stories in a way that made sense to me based on what I had read because you do pick up 
structure to some degree by reading when you're a sprout. If you don't read, but say, folks, you got a bigger problem. <laughs> if you're not a reader, you got a way bigger problem, craft, because you, reading quality work is um, um, reading quality work is you will pick up the basics of of narrative structure, even if you don't know that's what you're doing. Um, but it's when you're trying to kind of branch out and tell your stories, you may not realize, for instance, let's say you've mostly read, read plot-driven stories, and the story you're trying to tell is character-driven. You, you may struggle with trying to figure out what's going wrong with the story you're trying to tell. And that's where you kind of get it down, and then you go back and analyze it and go, well, what am I trying to do, and what serves my purpose? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I have to prepare for that question. But um, Yeah, me too. I couldn't answer that question on the top of my head. <clears throat> Yeah, um, but so I'll take a different story. Now, I'm gonna pick. I want. I was looking at my list. And this actually isn't a Sentinel story. I'll get this story, and um, there's a story that actually um, has a huge external motivator in it. Um, and if I was writing a plot-driven story, it would have come out very differently to the character-driven story that I told. And that story is Death of Silence. It was the second dead air consequence. It was actually the only real big dead air consequences that I ever wrote. Um, and the big external motivator, of course, is that Tony gets seriously injured while his backup has the radio off. Um, if my purpose was to tell... Now, my, my reason as a writer to... Uh, for writing that, which is the purpose of the story is a little bit different from my reason as a writer. My reason as a writer was because I wanted a story that had said had some real-world consequences for Tony getting hurt and a, a realistic fallout from those events, and also just to exercise the demons of dead air, which I still have not exercised. I'm working on that. Um, I don't think I ever will because come on now. I know. That's just so egregious. You don't know what to do with it. But in purpose of the story, if the purpose of the story was real-world consequences and the fallout, I would have written a plot-driven story where um, we went to the trial and, like, you know, the con- actually dealt with the consequences um, as opposed to... Um, the, the purpose of the story was, was getting Tony and Gibbs both to the point of where they could let go of the team they had tried so hard to build and protect. And, and also, you know, by the time of the, by the, time of the epilogue, um, the events also bring them together. So the climax of the story is also these events. You know, the, the, I was using that trope of when one, part, when one person's life is jeopardized, the other partner finally confesses their feelings. It's a good trope, you know. Um, I adore that trope. I also like the rescue trope. I'm here to save you because I'm in love with you, and I didn't know it until someone took you. 
Yeah, that, it's a great My bad. The, 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 the giving a reason for a character to act is great. You know, in Jeopardy is a great um, trope. So it was a character arc both for almost, Tony's unconscious for most of the story. So it was more of a character arc for Gibbs than it is for Tony. Um, because Gibbs has to deal with his own failings to a degree, not as much as he does in memory. Um, and how he feels about his team combusting in a way that he couldn't have possibly conceived. But you have this, all oh, there are external events, um, Tony being hurt, um, dealing with, you know, all these plot events like getting Viva and McGee and taking them back to the station, getting their reports, confronting them, um, dealing with Vance, um, handing off the case. There's all these external plot points that we dealt with. And then Abby and her reaction and her trying to manipulate the situation. Um, and Gibbs realizing it, it, it the, but the arc was more about his reactions and how he was handling it and his coming to realize that he had to handle things differently. And so his, his internal arc was what was driving the story, even though there were all these, all these external events building the plot were, this is a case of where, you know, the external events are heavily driving internal events, but the internal motivation, um, because it was a character-driven story, was more important than the external events. Well, I say that, but then that's not entirely strictly true. Um, but if I had been writing that plot-driven, it would have come out very differently. There would have been a footnote. It would be kind of a mention about them getting together. It, that wouldn't have been... Um, the thrust of the whole thing, the emotional healing, that kind of thing, getting back to being willing to go back to work. Um, I actually glossed over it in that story um, when I wrote the epilogue for that story uh, about that Tony was getting ready to go back to work at the end of it. I actually think when I sat down and actually was working on that story, I had to skip the events between him getting out of the hospital, basically, and the jump forward to Christmas. Um, because when I thought through it, I don't know how someone in his position would ever feel comfortable going back out in the field again with anybody. And at the time... He's been betrayed again. Yeah. At the time, because when somebody's working undercover um, in any situation um, or working in, in law enforcement, even whether they're undercover or not, the... The betrayal of backup, that particular betrayal, would cut so deep that I don't know how you function again in that role. And I thought through it and thought through it and thought through it. And my conclusion was, if I were writing a character arc heavily focused on Tony around those events, but there's no way he would stay in law enforcement. And that's why I skipped those steps, is because it was, a gift story that needed to end on a positive note. <laughs> um, it was a holiday. You know, it was a holiday story for the holidays. <laughs> Which is why it ended at Christmas. Um, and it needed to end on a better note. So I didn't go through his, his arc of getting back to healing and getting going through rehab and all that kind of stuff. Because it would have, I, if I would written through all of that, I would have had a hard time making the end plausible, in my opinion. So I had to do a, a skip. Um and uh, show him getting ready to go back to work. 
Um, but I did kind of do a nod to him, wondering if he was even going to get back to work, but ultimately decided to give it a try. Um, but at the same time, at the same, I plotted a spinoff story of that where he never goes back to NCIS. So sometimes you just got to get that out of your head. But that's a case of where you've got this big <laughs> external event. Um, if you're, if you, if I was writing plot driven, it would have come out very differently than writing something character driven. This is also a good time to point out that character conflict can create external and internal motivations for your um, for your hero. So if your hero has conflicts with other characters, this can cause um, eternal motivations to switch, internal motivations to shift, um, and it can cause external motiv- uh, external events uh, to change or more likely his response to events will change you look at dead air fic in particular if um a lot of times you see fix where uh tony doesn't trust gibbs to take his side this is a character conflict mm-hmm. And because he doesn't trust Gibbs to take his side, he often goes outside the chain of command to lodge his – he goes over Gibbs's head because he doesn't trust Gibbs's response. And in, in, in stories where him and Gibbs are already a pair and he trusts Gibbs and he knows if he goes to Gibbs, this is going to get handled and there's going to be a thing um, – then it becomes a different kind of character conflict because it becomes them against Ziva and Tim. But this kind of, this imperfect, um, you got me, you incepted me. This, um, these character conflicts can shape, um, both, it can shape internal responses to external stimulation. (laughs) Ha ha. Say that really fast 20 times. (laughs) Because <laughs> I couldn't say it really fast once. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't say short story earlier. Start story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in in theory, you can't really truly separate. Except, I mean, they're always corner cases, right? But your external. Sometimes you have internal motivation that doesn't have anything to do with your external events. But um, it's stuff that's there when your story begins. But um, usually your external events should be driving or they, they're intertwined. I mean, one driving, usually external events shouldn't be too terribly influenced by what's going on internally, but they could be depending on what your character's up to. Um, But, I mean, it's really difficult to separate them. If your character's not reacting to external events, then what is your character doing? They're not interacting with the plot. I'm trying to think of examples of where you would have external events at your characters that don't feed into internal motivation. Um.
Because internal motivation is about how your character responds to external events or if they do. And if they don't respond to external events, that is part of their motivation. That is part of their internal motivation. Because why aren't they responding? It's sort of like if there's a call for help. Let's say, let's say you know, there's a call for help. Somebody says, I need help, and your character chooses not to go and help. Well, they have to have a reason for that. So... <laughs> I'm thinking. Uh, <laughs> my mind is like I know, right? Over here. It's like I mean, unless they're in a coma, they're reacting to the things they because when it comes to external motivators, they're motivators. They're well, they're called motivators for a reason. Your internal stuff doesn't necessarily affect the stuff that your plot, but not in an obvious way. Um, I don't want to get too technical. Um, but yeah, your character needs to react to what's going on with the plot points. Because if, if you look at your external motivators as your plot, which we've talked about before, your character needs to be reacting to those things as they happen. Which is one of the things that can happen is that people throw... Um, yes. So... so um, Non-canned fan says basically non-reaction is still a reaction as far as motivation is concerned. Yes, um, not reacting to event is a, is effectively a reaction. It's sort of like a, a negative is still a result. Um, if something is presented to your character and they don't react to it, that is still that says something to their motivation. So, to their internal motivation, because In- internal motivation sees, it, it, it informs their reaction. And depending on what it is, it can shape your character's morality. If your character ignores someone drowning, if they ignore their neighbor screaming for help, and you've acknowledged this to the reader, then you are shaping your character in a very... um, It can be a very subtle thing. Um, And it's really great for characterization um, to what your character looks at and responds to in in their daily life. Yeah, they're a dick. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes that's exactly what you want. One thing I see... In, especially in, in new writing and new writers, is that the goals and motivations of their main character can be very clear, and the goals and motivations of secondary characters are non-existent. Like the bad guy's a bad guy for no reason. So it's important that when you create characters to act as a foil for your hero or your heroine, that you give them goals and motivations too. And they have to respond to external events as much as your hero does. Otherwise, your secondary characters are going to fall flat and they'll look two-dimensional and boring. 
are just not genuine. They look like straw people. And actually, the funny thing is sometimes you'll get, there's a thing that will happen when it comes to external motivators that are extreme. Like when you put people under extreme stress. Um, people can act extreme, seemingly out of character in extreme situations. And that's realistic. Um, depending upon the extreme situation, and it's something to consider if you have big, difficult external motivators. Um, is what is, how would your character react under extreme stress? Um, and the funny thing about this is, right, if you've considered it, if you've considered that people don't always act appropriately under extreme stress or when they're exhausted, they're not always perfect when they're tired, when they've gone days and days without sleep, um, or when they haven't had enough food. People are not perfect under event stress, physical stress. So if you've considered that as an author, in, 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 then there's no act, no way you have your character respond that is quote-unquote wrong if you've thought about it. But you could get pushed back from your readers, no matter what you do, that your characters are acting out of character, or they're not acting they're acting just like they do when they're not under stress. It's like, well, would he really be that calm, cool, and collected with an alien invasion happening over his head? Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, it would depend on how many alien invasions have happened over his head. Exactly. So. You as but there's something you need to think about is when you're throwing external stressors at your character, is um, they're not cardboard people. They really aren't. And depending upon how used use they are, how accustomed they are to um, stressors, like a character. So for instance, we all know this, okay? Um, okay, I'll, here I'll give a personal example for Kira and I. Kira and I have one thing in common in our, in our terms of our, like our biology, is that we both tend to get very little sleep, and sometimes for long stretches at a time. So I don't function any differently on a night of no sleep, for the most part, than I do on a night of full sleep. It's, it just doesn't affect my behavior much, because I have built up a tolerance to minimal sleep starting since I was a kid. On the other hand, I know people or else people post about how they only got four or five hours of sleep last night and how they can't function. Um, or they say something snippy or inappropriate or they act asshole-ish and then they come back and go, I'm sorry, I didn't get much sleep last night. <laughs> and I kind of, it's completely different when you take somebody who is accustomed to not sleeping and functioning on low sleep and you give them a sleepless night and have them function and they might know that they're a little bit short-tempered, but for the most part, they're going to keep going. Conversely, I'll, my sister, give her four hours of sleep and days recovering from that. <laughs> and I just can't. I just <laughs> That's have no so time. crazy. I just can't. 
I can't, I can't talk. I just don't talk to her. I just leave her alone. It's like, oh, my God. She tells me all this stuff four hours last night. I just go in my room and shut the door. Because she is I don't know, there. actually, if I've just become tolerant to little sleep or I've been a bitch for so long that it's just my natural state. I mean, who knows what I'd be like if I actually got eight hours of sleep every day. <laughs> I could be a totally different person. <laughs> Well, it could be, but the point is, is I, haven't, gave you, if you I haven't had that in my experience. So let's say you're used to, your average is four hours a night, and that's what you're used to running on. Um, and sometimes you have less than that. Uh, my point is that a sleepless night is not going to significantly alter you. No, no. From your norm, it doesn't alter me. You give my sister a half night sleep over her normal full night sleep, she turns into a raging monster. I mean, not lovingly, of course, however, but, and so it's a matter of, and that's just a tiny thing, right? There are things that if you're somebody who's in law enforcement and you're used to being shot at, you are going to handle crises where there's danger a lot more, with a lot more grace than someone who's never been shot at in their entire life or never been in danger. Significant physical danger. I actually have an example of this. I have an example of this that's actually written. Um, in the air that angels breathe, um, I open it with um, Rodney almost falling off a balcony and John um, saving him. And um, they go to the infirmary to get you know checked out, and Rodney does. And um, Jennifer, you know, tells him, you know, well, you you, you nearly died today. I just thought you'd want to you know hang out with me because she's trying to date him. And um, he says, I nearly die all the time. <laughs> it's, it's not even a thing. It's not even a thing for him anymore. Yeah. Because he nearly dies all the time. And, and actually, that isn't Rod, even the part Rod, that's upset him. Right. Go ahead. And actually, in canon, the SGA writers did a really good job of evolving Rodney um, in terms of how he reacted to danger over the series. Because um, if you look at him in, like, season four versus season one, he was a mess, you know, when he's being yeah. shot out in the field. And they really evolved how he adapted to being, because you do, you do adapt, people adapt. Um, but it's not realistic if you take a character who has never been in any particular danger and they're being shot at and they're calm, cool, and collected. It will actually seem odd unless you have a good explanation for it. Um, so but it's a matter of, you know, are you considering? Is Are you thinking through how your characters will be? Because sometimes the best people... It's like, I think sometimes readers expect characters to be, um, I don't mind idealized, but almost a little too idealized, you know? Uh, Like Uh they're never going to be an asshole. They're never going to say the wrong thing. Um, Like you can see this actually with TV shows or with um, movies or whatever. It's like a character is kind of does the one thing wrong. It's like fans will start hating on them. And it's like maybe they just had a bad day. Maybe they were just being a human being, you know. And I actually like it when characters have a little bit more dimension and fuck up sometimes because people fuck up. 
I don't mind fuck ups. I do mind disloyalty and betrayal. Yeah. Which I don't consider fuck ups. Um, no, I agree. Betrayal's my hot button. I don't come back from betrayal with, with people and stories. With Lady Holder stories. says in our private chat that Daniel Jackson is also a good example of this. The change, the shift. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially Movieverse. They did a good job in the series, too, of evolving him. Um, but just in the course of the movie, um, they really evolved that character a lot in the course of the movie. Look, every character has a line that they can't come back from, you know? They need to know what their what their what 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 their no point is and not cross it. I wrote a line about that in my story Hidden War. Um Moody says it. Hold on. Um that's a Harry Potter story. Going through all my stupid folders. That's war story, there it is. Um <clears throat> Harry tells Moody's portrait that he just wants to survive. He just that he doesn't think he's a dark lord in the making. That he that he doesn't think that kind of behavior is in him. And Moody said, "Everyone has a breaking point, lad, and you're no different. Right now, you've got a line you won't cross, but that line could be redrawn between one instant and the next." And I did redraw that line in Darkly Roll. No, I didn't redraw it. I erased it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Is there a line? Like, that out. <laughs> Was there a line? It's gone now. But you, 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 you ship you. When you did the Darkly Roy, you you redid your whole premise. Um, right. So I mean, like, there's some things I would never have a character that I um, my main character my, my whoever my unicorn is in that particular story or main character there's some things I would never have them do and one of them is adultery I would never have or not just adultery but infidelity I just wouldn't do that um, unless the a relationship they were coming out of was over I mean they don't have to actually be physically divorced I don't mean the legality of adultery but the the betra- partner betrayal part, I would never have yeah, to write that. Yeah, I have a, story, a problem with that. Ever, I would never write partner betrayal. Don't um, don't sleep with somebody else and then come home to your partner and say I love you to your motherfucker. You need to be stabbed. Or even, I mean, I read a story where the main character was in a was in a good relationship. Okay, not a great one. They were just in a good relationship with somebody who treated them well. And they meet up with the person that they had had a, a you know, a, a, a boner for in their past part of their life who they'd never gotten, the one that got away. And they got drunk and had a fling and went back to their partner and didn't say anything. And then it came out. And then they get back together with the person, the partner leaves them, of course, and they get together with the old flame, and that's the OTP, right? Is the old flame that he cheated with is the OTP. Um, 
I would never write that. I would never write that. I don't care if the because it's just me personally because that that would be the line. I don't care what stress or how much alcohol I would apply to my characters. Would I ever write one that, that, that engaged in partner betrayal? Um, I don't care how. But she's totally you know, on board the murder train. <laughs> yes. In the right, in the I'm right spot, like you know, <laughs> it was telling the story. Like I wouldn't, I would never do a pivot. I would not do a bait and switch on a character in a story where they um, suddenly went on the murder train for for reasons that didn't make sense. Um, I highly recommend a kill everybody you hate story. I really enjoyed myself. I kill people I didn't actually hate because you know plot reasons, but. And you know, I just had to have people in these in these organizations. Like, okay, I will stick this one over here. Uh, it'll be fine. It'll be quick. <laughs> but I also recognized that I had some buried resentment for characters. I was kind of bitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, ever since I read that that Tony serial killer story, I kind of wanted to write him as a serial killer, but that would be a completely different premise than you think, but I would start with that, right? I wouldn't like do a bait and switch in the middle. Um, unless he was a serial killer all along and I was writing an unreliable narrator, but we know how I feel about that and I wouldn't do it. So... No, I'm reliable with an air narrator pisses me off. Unless it's Elizabeth Peters. Amelia can lie to me all day long. Go ahead, Amelia. I know you you've been dyeing your hair for twenty years. Go ahead and say you're naturally long curly black hair. <laughs> you lying liar who lies. Yeah. Sure, sure, you sprinted across the field. You're sixty, you're not sprinting. <laughs> I was thinking that I have another example of um, external motivation, external events heavily influencing, um, like causing the character to pivot on their internal motivation, which was um, the For You All Forgive story, the story with Ethan Moore, um, Senator. Mm. Um, I love that one. That's one of my favorites of mine. Um, it is, um, and that's it. And this is this is a character-driven story. Clearly, there are the external events. There's lots of external events. Um, the purpose of the story is getting Tony to the place where he can because the story, the series is called For You, um, and every um, episode in the series will be the completion of that sentence. So the first story is the purpose of it is I'll forgive. Um, so the purpose is in the title. And on most of them, the purpose will be in the title. So like um, one of them will be like, for you, I'll wait. Um, for you, I'll change. That kind of thing. Um, so the first one is for you, I'll forgive. So the point of that story, the purpose of it, is to get Tony to a place where he can forgive um, Ethan for leaving him when they were in college. Um and so there's a lot of external events kind of driving his character arc, um, his him being left at the altar, um, and the kind of tentative steps they're taking towards each other. But Tony's on the fence in that story about forgiveness. 
he's not sure if he can um, forgive uh, because that's, you know, in order for him to move forward, he has to get past Ethan dumping him, Ethan choosing to be in the closet over over their relationship when they were younger. Um, and he's not sure that he can do that. He's not there until the moment he thinks that Ethan's died. So we take a really big external stressor, external motivator, that makes him realize that he's actually already forgiven, that that's, and and it's almost that 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 event was almost a case of Tony acting a tiny bit out of, not out of character. It's not out of character that he would go right to New York, but um, if you had asked him prior to that event, um, what he would do in the event of a terrorist attack, he would be on the job. And in that moment, the most important thing to him was finding Ethan. And so he took the opportunity to go to New York and look for Ethan. He finds it on the way where Ethan is and that Ethan is alive. Um, but that big external that big external motivator was what helped give Tony the internal changed his internal motivation and helped him and brought us to the climax of the story and the point of the purpose of the story was realized because of his external motivation, his external plot point. That probably is one of the stories I've written that has the most clear structure in terms of external and external motivation and playing the two off of each other. I'm trying to think of um I don't even know what the fuck I was trying to think of. You guys, you, you this is like going to be an historical record of me losing my fucking mind this podcast. I mean, not this particular podcast, but the entire bulk of my podcast. I am out of cheese. I do have pudding. But it's sugar free. Your your blood sugar might be a little sugar free. I think your blood sugar might be a little bit low, but then she says sugar free pudding. I'm like Okay. Yeah. Let me check my sugar. Um, <clears throat> I, I talked last night about the birth of the Serpent King and um, Harry's character arc in it and, you know, w- what the point was. And, um, but uh, Harry is repeatedly driven in that story by external factors. Um, but, the focus is on his development as a character. Now, I do have a story where Harry and Draco are from almost the very beginning at the mercy of somebody else's actions. And that is um, that old black magic. I was going to say, my brain went right to um, the War Mages trilogy. Yeah, and there are two more books coming for that. And um, they, they are plotted. I just tried to get Maybe I do need some sugar, but I just try to get another blood strip sugar out when I already have one in the device waiting on the blood. I try to stick another one in there. You know, the other day I had an accident with a lancet trying to get it into the um, thing, and mm-hmm. I jammed the fuck out of my thumb. I mean, there was blood everywhere. Ooh. And you know what I did? I put the cap on the lancet and pricked another finger. <laughs> you crazy ass. <laughs> 
I well, I was when so I, in that muscle memory thing of put the cap on the the thing and 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 get my blood sugar and, and so my thumb is bleeding everywhere and I pricked my forefinger and then I went what did I do that for? I tested one twenty five so I'm not I'm not in a bad place. I mean, not low. Either way. Uh, so I'm, I'm just a disc tonight. It's, it's fibro. It's it's fibro fog. <clears throat> Shit just falls out my it. brain. But I do think that yeah, from the very beginning of um, that old black magic, Draco and Harry are at the mercy of somebody else's actions, and that is Neville's actions in the future. And from the moment he sends them back in time, they are constantly responding to one threat after another, um, and they're having to defend their pairing to Dumbledore, to the Order, to um, his mother. They Over and over and over again, he's having to... Um, they're both having to respond to... Uh, adults around them getting in their business when these are two grown men stuck in 16-year-old bodies. <laughs> it's, you know, and then, of course, you know, Draco is forced to kill his own father. Well, not so much forced as, but given an opportunity to kill his own father. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> If my blood sugar was 187, I would be in the bed right now with a cloth over my face because I would have a terrible headache. Mm-hmm. Um, if I go over 170, I get a headache like you would not believe. I don't want to go there. Um, so, now there is, you know, <gasps> what? what? Oh, what? Um, hold on. Boo, do you weigh like five pounds? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, okay. What? Jesus, fuck, that scared the shit out of me. Oh, did, did you? I just got, you, was it I a, just got this notification. I just got this notification. It said this section was deleted from your OneNote notebook, and it was my Harry Potter section, which is everything oh. with Slytherin Black and Aliomoto. Everything about my epic Harry Potter epics are in that section in OneNote. And when I saw this notification pop up that said this section was just deleted, I was like, "What? <laughs> what? What? What are you talking about?" I actually almost teared up sitting here before I went and go check. It's still there, so I have no idea what that's about. But now I feel like I need to duplicate that section because I just freaked the fuck out. Yeah, I would duplicate it, just in case. Why don't you export it into a Word document? Out of OneNote. Yeah. I'll do that while you continue. I'm going to export this real quick. Okay. I just, so, um, I actually almost teared up. It was terrible. I, but I understand it. I understand. But that is just like, what? <laughs> but so they are constantly responding in that old black magic to one threat after another and neither one of them 
would have taken the opportunity to go back in time if they had been asked. Not a single, none of them would have done it. Um, I'll plot on paper and um, electronically. Uh, but I started a new notebook today. I wrote on it. I'll post a picture later on Facebook so you guys can see what I wrote on my notebook. Um, anyways, um, if you care. Uh, it, but they do have to have an emotional journey in that old black magic where not only do they, um, they have to embrace their new circumstance and accept it. And I demonstrated that acceptance by the fact that when they were faced with the, with the opportunity to return the timeline to what it was before and to get their life back, that they agreed to stay back in time and to, and to make things better. They agreed to fix it. Um, when, when they were given an opportunity to return to the future that they had been, um, very rudely taken from. But if they had been asked that in the first chapter, they would not have hesitated to say yes. Send us back. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) So, they had, so getting that question asked when they asked it was really important. It really mattered because there were various points during that during that story where if the fates had come to them and said, "Hey, dudes, you know we we didn't ask you," um, <laughs> how you how you feeling about this? <laughs> Do you want to go back to the way it was before? And and, it, and for a large portion of the book, they would have both said, hell yes, send us back, because I'm tired of this shit, and I don't want to fight Voldemort again, and I'm tired of not having, being able to do what the fuck I want, and people bossing me around. <laughs> I'm a grown man. <laughs> so, you know, uh, getting them to the point in their um, in their journey in the past where they were both um, genuinely willing to accept their their new place um, was was a hard road for me as a writer because um, I think uh, there's a fine line that I could have crossed in that fic where it wouldn't have looked genuine. So um, I I hope that I accomplished it that at the end that they both made a a genuine choice and it, and it felt real for their characters and not something that I forced on them as a writer. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I felt, I mean, that's one of my favorites. So, um, I mean, the first time I, one of the, one of the first times I ever had any kind of interaction with you was I left a comment on Birth of and King about how much I loved it. Um, and, you responded that I should go read old, that old black magic. And I was like, but I had decided not to read that because it had time travel. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh, was like but it was based on something I had said. You suggested that I go read the old black magic. And so I was kind of like head scratching a little bit. Like, well, I sure recommend I do that because I didn't want to say to you, I hate time travel, but I was like, no, all right, whatever. And I got to the end of it and I went, oh, yes. I want to hug this story. <laughs> I think of the two that Old Black Magic is, um, is the better story. Um, I would like to go back and tweak Birth of the Serpent King a little bit. Not a lot. Not I don't want to change the overall story, but I'd, I'd like to do some work on it. Um, but 
I think that uh, of the two that I much prefer um, that old black that old black magic. Lady Holder's messing us in the box. That's what she's saying. Oh, she said, "Oh." <laughs> I started book two of, of that series, um, and um, so I, I have three chapters written. Maybe they'll show up on EAD next year. You know, when it comes to internal versus external motivation, um, If I was talking strictly to external motivation, I I looked at my list of stories, looked at everything I've written, and I don't think I've written anything. Well, there's this one that mostly I write in stories that are more focused on internal motivation, or meaning that they're more character driven than they're plot driven. Some of them have very complex, intricate plots, but they're still more character focused than plot focused. So the internal motivators make are I can't say they're more important, but because I'm focusing on the character, they're driving things more than the external events. But of course, you need the external events to um, make some of these make these internal stuff happen. So I mean, there's some stories, that I, I, especially some things that are still in the works that have incredibly intricate plots. And there's a lot of external events that are driving the story. Um, but because I'm a character-driven, character-focused writer, and I don't know how not to do that. That's just my space. Um, internal motivation will always capture my attention more than the external motivation. And that's probably something I actually need to pay a little bit of attention to, um, is to make sure that... Um, I'm writing logically consistent plots. It's something sometimes I get. That's why I sometimes have plot holes that I don't spot, is because I'm using the plot to take my character where I want the character to go, uh, and sometimes that that can be a form of tunnel vision if that makes sense. You get blinders on, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like it's sort of like um, it's sort of like the way J.K. Rowling, in, in her way, sacrificed the characterization of all the adults in the story in order to make Harry's story happen. You know, she basically had to make them all monsters, either incompetent, either incompetent or apathetic or just negligent. Something bad about all these adults that Harry's life and events could happen, and I don't think that was her intention. But that is what's implied. That's what you can easily infer from the way the story is told. And we get blinders on like that. And when you are one or the other, when you're very focused on one or the other, either character or plot, you can, if you don't take a step back, you can miss inconsistencies that bite you in the butt later. So if you're more focused on the character and on making events happen to keep your character going where you want them to go, you can create series of events that are implausible. The reverse is also true. If you're just writing events, you can have, and you have the character doing what you need the character to do to make the events happen, you can write a character who's out of character or responding in a way that doesn't make sense. And that's why internal and external motivation is a balancing act. 
I wonder how many kids all over the world wrote J.K. Rowling and asked her why there wasn't Child Protective Services in um, the U.K. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how many of my nephew um, asked? How, how, my nephew asked me. <laughs> how many and how many uh, Harry Potter fan fiction writers have looked up what it's called in the U.K. so that they can <laughs> write it into their Fix It Fix because. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> anyway, I do think the thing that I wrote in all of my writing, oh, about to say, I do think actually think that's the thing that has the most external events, and hmm, no. Um, even that's not the most plot-driven thing. Um, it's actually kind of a little bit of a weird thing about emergence. The very first thing I wrote is that it starts off a very a lot of external events. There's no doubt that there's a lot of external events, but it's very much character-driven up to a point, <laughs> and then there's a point at which it becomes more plot-driven, and the character dynamics fall away. Um, and I've talked in the past about how emergence should have been more than one story. And that probably is an indicator of where that point should have happened. And I'd have to go analyze this and figure out exactly where. But there, when, that, when that shift from character to plot-driven happened, I really was in a different story arc. Um, so, but mostly when I look at my list of stories, even the things that are the most intricate, complicated plot stories are still heavily character-driven. The internal motivators, for me, tend to outweigh the external. Mm-hmm. And I think of the things I've written that's the most complicated plot is subversive, which is never has not been finished, uh, but and it's not available anywhere. So that's probably something I it's kind of like I mentioned that people are maybe, well, where can I find it? You can't. I haven't put it up anywhere. That was the. Um, whole new world challenge we did. I did the werewolf thing. Anyway, um, if anybody has any questions in the chat about losing the chat, uh, do they have any questions about external motivation or even internal? I think it's important for me, um, what I did early on was um, to differentiate between internal and external motivations is that external motivations are 99% of the time they're going to be events. Events that get in your character's way, hurt your character, confuse your character. Um, They're events. These are the external actors Interfering with your character, pushing them down the path, and their responses internally to these events are how you develop your character. Their external responses are somebody else's motivators. It's cause and effect. Yeah. 
everything you put in is linked. Nothing happens in the story in a vacuum, and if it does, um, then it's really not serving your plot. If it doesn't have any impact on anything, it's not serving your plot. This is where you could actually get into thinking um, about extra points of view. Is if it doesn't do anything for your story, if it's not if you, if it's not motivating your main character or anything, if then what is it doing? To, what is it doing? What is its purpose? What is its function? What is it doing? I don't read many works in progress, um, but there are a few um, that I was just so intrigued by. I just had to click on them, and one of them updated today, and. It was a long update, and this long, this big update for a chapter, even big, but even big by you know my, my standards for chapter, was entirely an extraneous point of view. It hadn't really been much in the story, but the whole thing was just this point of view, of just this secondary to the borderline tertiary character thinking about the events of the story, mostly thinking. Um, and that didn't, that didn't serve the story in any meaningful way that I could tell. Um, and it's difficult to judge somebody else's work, particularly an incomplete work. But every point of view should serve the story. Everything, which means if it's serving the story, what that means is it's serving your purpose. So not necessarily potentially moving the plot forward, but maybe it's a vanity scene or could be seen as a vanity scene, but it may not be a vanity scene if it's meeting the purpose of, like, if part of your purpose of your story is, like, um, emotional feeling or something like that. That can be difficult to say what scenes serve that purpose, and that's where, you know, you as the author know what's going on. Um, But everything that happens needs to be in service of purpose and that's where you have to start questioning events that don't or events occur there are there are, you know billions of events that occurred in these universes that are not talked about right there's right. you know every 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 day the care you know there's news events and current events and pop culture stuff that occurs in the universe that you're writing in that are not focused on so there's all kinds yeah, of Yeah, seriously, all my writing. characters go pee, but I never talk about it. Right, because it doesn't serve the story, unless something really weird is coming out of their dick. <laughs> um, and that could be a really interesting external motivator. It's like, who, who, what did they, who, how did he get that that turned his pee blue or whatever? And, you know, is it going to keep happening? But there's all kinds of stuff happening, but if it doesn't, serve the story, the purpose of the story doesn't serve the plot. It's just now I will say I understand. I do understand because I have been there where I'm struggling and I go off on weird tangents that don't do anything. Um we've all turned left at Albuquerque and found a dead body. (laughs) Right. But, you know, at one time, 
sons of bitches, and I may have talked about this in the podcast, but last night, I think it was, I was struggling. It was not the story that I was struggling with. It was my own emotional state was compromised by something that had happened, and I was very sad. Um, and apparently, when I get sad, I get very pedantic. And the next thing I knew, I had 2,000 words of my next chapter devoted to office furniture. Um, so I understand. I understand that we go down weird paths sometimes. But if you are of the mindset that everything you write is gold and everything you write needs to be shared, you're going to have a hard time coming back from office furniture because it didn't have any bearing on the plot whatsoever. It didn't even have any bearing on the character's state of mind. It was just this conversation that started about an uncomfortable chair that turned into this whole bureaucratic crap about how um, office furniture is ordered at this center, which had no bearing on the story at all. So, <laughs> I wonder if John Steinbeck ever had to answer questions about that stupid turtle. I'm sure he was asked about that turtle. I have questions about the stupid turtle. I get it. I get the metaphor. I just don't know why it was so long. <laughs> you've not had a metaphor thrown in your face until you've been beaten across the head with it for a whole chapter. <laughs> well, I, I have a terrible habit of not reading all of those. But this is when the OCD messes you up. Uh, I had no choice but to read all the assigned reading in school. So she said I had to read Grapes of Wrath. I I read Grapes of Wrath cover to cover. Even the creepy breastfeeding one part. I mean, I read, when I read something, I do read, I I, I get cover to cover, but there's some skimming going on. I had to. I just stabbed somebody when I was reading um, Wuthering Heights. There could have been like a mass murder if I'd had to read that word for word. There's just so much angst. I can't. I have. I have a low angst threshold. Okay, and there's shit that you know. So many writers like to portray as romantic that offends the fuck out of me. So, you know, I had I had moments when I was reading Wuthering Heights. Because Heathcliff is not romantic. Nothing about that motherfucker is not an asshole. So. I had I had I had issues, so I had to do some skimming. I had to do some skipping, but I did go cover to cover in a very literal sense. Um, <laughs> but I can't say I read every word. I had an argument with a t- teacher in high school over Wuthering Heights because she said it was a romance. And I said, "No, it's not." But it's not remotely romantic. I probably Neither is Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. That's a three-day murder spree so... that ends in suicide. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I probably wouldn't have been so upset by Wuthering Heights if it hadn't been presented to me as a romance. Um, but, you know, that's the problem with expectations, right? <laughs> when you're expecting a romance and you go in and get Heathcliff, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Speaking of, if I hate anything more than Grapes of Wrath, it'd probably be Great Expectations. 
or maybe a tale of two cities. Hmm. I can't decide. I'm deeply unfond of them both. Well, most romance of the time period did does read like a cautionary horror story to us. <laughs> it's about perspective. I read Bleak House, but I have absolutely no memory of it. What's that say? I've blocked a lot of the classics out. I raged over the Scarlet Letter. I read half of it, yeah. and I went back to school and told my teacher how much bullshit I thought it was. I just had a fit. And she said, um, would you like a different book to read for your report? <laughs> and I said, yes! I can't believe you gave me this ridiculous trash. <laughs> I was so mad. <laughs> okay, when I was in, when I was in college, um, my sister and I actually took a, uh, uh, um, Oh, I can't say it was a literature class. What class was it? We took some class where um, the teacher decided not to do the classics. She decided to assign other books. And um, the first book we got was High Fidelity. And it was pretty popular right then at that time. And um, my sister and I had the exact same reaction to it, um, which was this was like reading about some guy's really self-destructive midlife crisis, and we hated the fuck out of it. And we get in and we're supposed to have a discussion about the book, right? So by the time you're supposed to have it done. And everybody is raving. People start raving about this book. And the teacher really loved it. It's why she designed it. And my sister and I, we're both we're exchanging looks. Like, are these people crazy? And, um, you know, like, they just well, I pretend they put it in my hand. And, and I was like, I hated this book. I thought it was horrible. And she was like, why? And so my sister out tag team giving our passionate response to why this book was terrible and nobody should have to endure reading about, you know, some slacker's midlife crisis. <laughs> 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 we, we, we somehow managed to talk like half the room into hating the book. Um, things are like, well, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. But, I mean, we both felt really strongly that this was just a horrible, horrible thing to put somebody through. Um, and um, the next book she assigned was Rainbow Six by Tom Clancy and I was just like I give up on this class <laughs> but the point of the class is to discuss and analyze these stories right so she and I have a very different perspective on a book that everybody else had really loved. So, and the same thing happens with the classics. Some people read the classics and go, oh, this is great. And sometimes you read something and you go, oh, my God, that was awful. Well, I don't want to do that to myself. Not only – I, you know, there's a reason why I don't write a lot of angst and I don't write um, Stories that'll make you cry like a baby. I try not to anyway. Other ones, someone tells me I made them cry. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> we just thought, oh, my writing. You know, um, I like a happy ending. I don't like to be depressed. 
I don't like to read things that are terrible except for that one story, and it's really good. It's a fantastic story, but oh, it's so sad. Um, and um, because I don't, I read to be entertained and uplifted in in some place lovely, mm-hmm. <laughs> not where all my darlings die. <laughs> Or just my unicorn, <laughs> as the case may be in that particular story. But so I don't write that stuff, and I don't like to read it. I don't want my heart torn out on a regular basis. If I if I wanted that, I'd watch CNN. That would do it too. Boo just says she read One Piece in its entirety. I don't know how she does that. I mean, how do you stay awake long enough? The thing is, I know there are people who like it. This, this is like illustrative that there is there is something for everybody out there. Because there is, uh, as we mentioned earlier, they love Wuthering Heights probably as much as I hate it. Um, and I read One Piece. Did you? I I couldn't get through yeah. it. Um. I read it for the sole purpose of my 14-year-old self, intellectual that I was, so that I could say that I had read War and Peace. <laughs> I was 14. I was very invested. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I read the Iliad and the Odyssey, but I can't particularly say I enjoyed reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. I enjoyed oh, the I notion the Iliad. of them more than- well, I enjoy the notion of them. I enjoy the stories that's there, but I don't actually enjoy reading that kind of prose. So it's like the interpretations of the Iliad I find a lot more entertaining than actually reading the Iliad. Um, mm-hmm. Just because it's not a format of style, a style, that particular type of prose is not what I want to read. Well, it's like epic poems or something, epic poetry. Um yeah, it, there is one it, book. Whenever I encounter someone who tells me they read the whole thing, all I can think it's bullshit. You did not, because if I can get through War and Peace and Anna Karenina the and Bleak House, which I don't even remember, and Wuthering Heights and Drapes of Wrath, but I could not read Democracy in America by De Tocqueville. Bitch, you didn't read it either. <laughs> Nobody's read. <laughs> Every word of democracy in America by the Tocqueville. If you say you have, I'm going to call you a fucking liar. I don't buy it. <laughs> don't believe it for a hot minute. I've read sections of it for a class, but I have never read the whole thing. Uh, um, and come on now. <laughs> okay. It's the first so book I, I sold, but I got a chance to sell my textbook. So I was walking out of the store the other day. Um, this was probably a couple weeks ago. I'm sure lots of people knew this book was coming. I did not know this book was coming. But there's this enormous stand for it. And I walked, it's like the names, the names of the authors, which are the biggest thing on it, penetrated my brain as I had already passed. The, this enormous, like my height, six foot tall um, stand thing for the book. Um, and it was 
it was the book is called The President is Missing it's by Bill Clinton and James Patterson. Yeah, I, I was thinking that's what it was. Yeah. I ground to a halt and turned around and like backed up and like what? And it was like just my brain like would tilt. Because I see, you know, I see new releases for James Patterson on books all the time. I don't even pause to look, but it was the combination of the two that I went, what? Yeah. <laughs> did you buy it? I did not. I, I have to admit, I'm curious. Uh, there have been a couple of James Patterson yeah. books that I enjoyed um, more that I didn't enjoy. Um, but I, I have to admit, I'm a little bit curious. <laughs> I don't know. I might buy it. I think it's, I'd be really interested to see um, the White House from the president's point of view. It may, you know, even in a fictional setting, and that's why Bill Clinton collaborated with it on it, so that you know that James Patterson would have an inside view of the White House. So I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah, we talk about the ultimate technical consultant, you know. Um, yeah. But talk about it's thing is, I would say you know if you want to look at like. Uh, considering what we're talking about, I would say that Patterson is a very um, plot-driven author. Um, mm-hmm. My favorite being Along what, Came a Spider. Yeah, Along Came a Spider is a great book. <clears throat> if you get over the title. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got over the title. As long as I'm not Along Came an Ant. Um, um, <laughs> actually, earlier today I was looking at project files, and the thing is, I knew you had told me there was an ant in one of the project files, um, and I I spaced it out, and so I was looking at cast pages, and there's this giant picture of an ant, and I flailed almost flailed off my chair. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, I told you. <laughs> I know you did. I know you did. I think you even told me which project file it was. And I just, you know, spaced it out between last night and this morning. One way um, I think that we really um, beneficial for to you as you go into um preparing for July and um your your writing and your plotting if you're plotting um is to de- develop a pattern of a rhythm in your head of action and consequence action and consequence action and consequence because actions and consequences are your scene builders and then you're a story builder. Um, actions and consequences, external motivations, eternal motivations, responses. All these things kind of, that they merge together and they build. So if you start putting actions and consequences together every single time you get ready to write, it'll be easier to see your pace and to also make sure, and also to keep your story in check. Because if you have too many actions, you're going to bust over 20K. And you'll learn from experience how many actions you can fit in 5K or in 10K or 20K, whatever. You know, you'll, that's something that you learn from experience. Uh, so I have this, this, and this. Okay, 
I can answer this question and this question in 20K, and it's Harry Potter, so I need to allot myself at least 5K FX position because I'm crazy. <laughs> There's going to be a ritual. So <clears throat> I'll be really lucky if my story is exactly 20,000 words. Really lucky. I'm I'm saying that I've I've plotted it and I've replotted it and I am skirting. I think if I let my it'll be like thirty. <laughs> if I if <laughs> yeah, I have the story that of mine that has more plot events in it is the one that I'm going to be fighting to keep in check. Um, to make sure I don't have unnecessary introspection or unnecessary exposition, um, because that all takes up words. Um, and even down to unnecessary adverbs, I'm be even trying to police my adverb usage because, you know, there's a lot to get in. But the story I'm actually finding myself resistant to making 20K and not 30K is the romance because. I have so many ideas for building that romance and all of those ideas are conversations and conversations is where I have the worst problem with scene lengths. Misestimating scene lengths is I'll say, okay, I can handle this plot point in a thousand words and then the conversation of that plot point takes 2,500. I can get really messed up in conversations running along. So... And I need a lot of conversations to build that romance. So it's a little bit, it's like I'm already kind of mentally like going, I really want like 30K of romance, not 20. So I'm trying to, you know, pick which events are the most important to actually show and then which events are can just be referenced or um, brought up in context of something else. So it just it kind of surprises it. It worked out that way because the one I thought would be really tight and easy to get through and word count was the romance, and it's the one that turns up my head. It's kind of like flipped <laughs> around. It's like I'm I'm resisting it because I just want to put all these scenes in to show the evolution of the relationship, um, so that when Tony makes a different decision, it feels like I've earned it. You know, right? So that um, it feels natural. Right, because when when a character does something, when a character does a pivot, you want to feel like, I mean, that's, that's the way I write. I try to feel like that as an author that I've earned that pivot, that the reader, that I've sold it to the reader, that it's in character, that it seems reasonable the character to do that. And that's why it's important to choose your moments. Yeah, I'm having a little bit of like this. This this is a better scene than that scene. Pick and choose thing because I've got too many now. There's too many. I mean, I can't put all those in. <laughs> I'm like thinking, okay, if I do a search and find all the little stars, I'm taking them off my word count. <laughs> my scene breaks. <laughs> those scene breaks don't count as words. Thank you. Although they do count, they word will count those little stars as a single word. Just FYI. 
I don't want any seam break. But word word will not count a compound adjective as two words. When other word count whether other word count counting programs do count compound adjectives as two words. So um, for the sake of words, how I count my word count, I'll just get my free zone with a compound adjective. <laughs> There's a lot of compound adjectives in the story. Did we notice that? <laughs> yes. And what's your point? <laughs> and and your problem would be that's why I'm at twenty thousand words and not at twenty one thousand words. <laughs> Thank you. Adverbs. Getting rid of adverbs is an excellent way to to, to mind your word economics. <laughs> Just go through and look for all your yeah. ly words. Most of the time, you don't even need them. <laughs> There are times, it, actually, the funny thing about the LY adverbs is I tend to disagree that they're never needed, but when you use them a lot, they have no impact when you do use them appropriately. So evaluate them, you know. When you're about to, when you're going to Oh, I love done, a fucking the, adverb. I do. I do, too. But, but search for the LY and go, okay, that's really impactful. It really does something there. And here it doesn't do anything and delete it. Right. <laughs> Mostly you Anymore. don't need L-Y words. I mean, I think they're very powerful when they're used a certain way, but a lot of times you can pull it out of the sentence, and the sentence won't lose any meaning. Like, softly. When you could say, stop that, June whispered. Mm-hmm. Now we're throwing L-Y adverbs out there. Yes, really, really. Really, really. Really, really is fine. If somebody says really and the other character goes really, really, that is a great pop culture thing. Just go ahead and leave that in. Then leave those LYs alone. Those work. <laughs> but like, like I said, if you're if you're, if you're going to run over, you know, start early. Start early with your word economics, and that way um, you've um, you have more room to play. Like, don't say I'm really tired. Say I'm exhausted. Yeah, softly whispered is redundant. Softly yeah. whispered. whispered. He moved over slightly. Say he inched over. Uh, harshly whispered, I would hiss. He hissed. Yeah. Instead of harshly whispered. Um. Again, the point is to use as few words as possible. Keep it tight. We're down to a minute and 20 seconds. If we dig in sometime at some point on internal motivation, that will be lots of fun. Because I I would be like a terrible, um, in a good way, like super villain who like fucked with people's heads. Like people's motivations, that's like where I'm like I like like you know, do the evil cackle and rub my hands together. I think it's really interesting. Um, oh, we're out of time. <laughs> Next time, forty yeah. seconds. Good night, Good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. Shut up and sit down.